0: Bob Mason will be bringing the word. Bob is a missionary to the nations as well as to our nation, leaving soon to help develop an orphanage for AIDS orphans in Botswana. He's a very special friend of Pastor Shake Anderson. Can we assure our appreciation as I turn the service to missionary statesman Bob Mason? little bitty kid. I didn't know it, but I could barely talk. My mother told me years later after I accepted the 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 call to go to some of the deepest, darkest places in the world, the Amazon jungle and dark places in Africa and a lot of communist countries doing covert underground ministry and all that, its a lot of dangerous situations. When I was talking to her about it, she said, oh, yeah, I've known since you were two or three years old you were going to do this. She said, when you were small, she said, you couldn't even... You couldn't even really talk, but you had—you knew—you knew one sentence, and you'd walk around the house saying, "I'm going to go around the world and tell people about Jesus that don't know about Jesus." And she said it was amazing because you'd do this—you're like two or three—you can't—you couldn't really talk, but you'd say that whole sentence, and that's all you would say. And, Of course, I don't remember that, but um, so she said, "I knew someday this would be your call because I had been in." And I'd taught at Christ for the Nations for eight years, and I'd done a lot of missions work through that ministry as well, and uh, and I'd pastored a lot in the Metroplex here in, in Dallas Metroplex, and and uh, and and so when God called me to the mission field, 15, 16 years ago, full time, it was it was really really strange for me because I I was like I had been involved in worship for 25 years. I'd started out with Russ Taft and a Christian rock band. When we were teenagers, and and, I, and for 25 years, that, that was my that was my life, and I still I love to worship. I, I'd rather do that than absolutely anything. If I could just worship, that's all I did, just you know, 24 hours a day for the rest of my life, I'd be very very happy. <laughs> um, but when when uh, when my wife passed on and went on to heaven, I, I just I kind of got in a. I'm a good soldier. Years, many years ago, God, you called me to do this so i 'm going to put one foot in front of the next and i'm not i 'm just going to do what you told me to do. The emotions were gone and all of that, but um, I was going to be uh, obedient, and that was that was boy, that was my word obedience i 'm just being obedient. I continued to build churches and I continued to do you know a lot of stuff on the field and all that, but the emotion was gone, and uh, God has really uh, re you know just reworked my heart it's really amazing uh, because i you know i would tell god i'd tell him how mad i was at him for taking my wife and uh, i said i said god i really don't like you and he goes that's okay i love you and um you know of course <laughs> what are you going to do when he does that you go boy oh, well, great thanks a lot god really appreciate that just pour it on okay um and, uh, and he, he just loved me back through all the, the hurt and the pain. And uh, I just thank God for friends like Shake that, that never gave up on me. And, you know, I, I, uh, it's such a wonderful privilege to be here with you today. I, uh, I had stopped ministering in the United States. I was doing my ministry overseas, and, and I was gone a lot. And, uh, and God was really blessing it. And, and when, when, uh, when all this came down... And my life just drastically changed overnight. Um, I I told the Lord, I said, you know, I'm I'm just, I am, I'm not going to orchestrate my life anymore. Uh, Just whatever you lay in my lap, that's what I'll do. Whatever you literally just bring to me and here it is, throw it in my face, that's what I'm going to do. And I should have been doing that all along. But I was orchestrating my own life. And man, I was doing a pretty dadgum good job of it too. I mean, I was successful and man, I mean, you know, built 300 churches, and I've been in 73 countries, and you know, I've, I've, just, I've lived 40 lifetimes, and they've been fantastic. And I thought I was doing a really good job. Man, I was ministering to 30,000, 40,000 in Berlin Stadium in, in Germany. I, I've been in Dr. Cho's church ministering to tens of thousands. I've ministered to thousands in Africa, 60, over 60,000 in, in the Amazon jungle. And, you know in and, and, uh, the biggest city in the world that 's locked off from the rest of the world with no roads, no railroads, nothing you know, just three weeks up the Amazon River by boat, that kind of thing i'd done so much and uh, uh, and I, I just and I just had been you know at Christ the nations i 'd been with the greatest ministers in the world. My life just was like the Midas touch. You know, just everything was fantastic and perfect and, and all of that. And, and I had done a great job orchestrating it. And then I just said, okay, Lord, I give up. My life is yours. And I'm, I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to pray. Whatever you bring my way, great. I'll do it. But I'm not orchestrating my life anymore. And then, man, my life took off. It just, God just started doing so many things. And what I realized was God will set you up. If you'll just be open to whatever He has, and it doesn't matter whether you're on the mission field preaching to 60,000 people, or if you're home in your neighborhood, you know, just across the street from your neighbor or whatever. God will set you up. If you will just completely turn everything over to Him, He will set you up. And my message, I completely changed it. I don't know if you guys got the word or not, but but um, I told Pastor this morning. I said I got two messages on my heart, and I'd already given them the scriptures on the first one. And then right before I walked in here, it's like the Lord said, "No, I want you to do this this other one that's on your heart." And uh, it's from Acts 17, and we're going to start with verse 16. And I think we're going to go to the end of the end of the the chapter. We'll see if we do or not. Um. And, and my message this morning is God will set you up if you will allow him to if you will just if you will just keep your heart open to whatever God tells you to do, no matter how bizarre or weird. Or, or how normal it seems. I mean, God works through normal all the time. You know, we talk about the supernatural and the, and the, all the extravagant, incredible things that God does. And that's great. And I, and you know, I've been so blessed. I've seen Him do those things literally on a daily basis sometimes, where you go on a mission, you know, you're out in the field and, you know, you might be two or three weeks in the Amazon jungle or two or three weeks in Africa or whatever it is. And you just, on a daily basis, you're just seeing God do these extraordinary things. And um, and, and it's all fantastic and wonderful. And, and like I said, I've lived 40 lifetimes and getting to see, I just feel like a dis, one of the disciples sometimes, and I'm just walking along, watching. You know, the disciples they would walk along and they would watch Jesus do things because we see all the miracles He did in the Bible. But the Word says, John said, if if everything that He did was written down, I suppose all the books in the world couldn't hold everything that He did because He would go into villages, well, t- towns or small cities, and the Word says He would go in and He healed them all, and I, that never really clicked with me. You know, you don't think about everybody being healed. You go, okay, that, that, that word's got to mean a bunch of people. It's got to mean a lot. It's got to mean quite a few. Well, I looked all those, all those words all up in the original languages. You know what the word all means? All. And, and, and what I realized was my wife was telling me, because she was born in India, raised in the Philippine Islands, and they did fantastic missionary work for 45 years and, and uh, her her family did in in Far East Asia, and um, and she would tell me she'd say, you know, hon, when I was talking to her about this, how the the Lord had been speaking in my heart about how He just healed them all, and and uh, and she said, well, you know, sweetheart, she said, 85 percent of the people in in uh, Philippine islands have tuberculosis. I said, 85 percent. She goes, yeah. She said, most are very, you know, very slight. Uh, but they carry that in their body because of all the generations of the disease. It's just basically everyone has it. Everyone's sick, but but you know the vast majority they just go on with life, like we might carry a virus in our body. Well, they carry that and they go on with life, but they actually have it. And I said I said that's phenomenal. She said, now of course many are very very sick from it, and I said. That's that's incredible. And I just realized that in Jesus' time, because of the bad water and all those things, that He would go into a, a town or a small city and everybody was sick. Every single person was sick. And He would go in and heal them all. I mean like tens of thousands. He would heal them all. And then when that started getting in my mind, I went, God, if You could do it then, if You could go and heal tens of thousands, like in one day simply because they came into Your presence, they didn't have to touch the hem of Your garment. They didn't have to work their way through the crowd of thousands touching the hem of Your garment and get that. They could just come into Your presence and believe. They didn't even have to be there. Man, man, the, the centurion said, Hey, you don't even have to go with me. Just speak the Word and my soldier will be saved miles from here. How you'll be healed. All you had to do was speak the word. All you had to do was come into the city. And your presence drove out disease. Just like his presence, demons would run screaming. "Uh, Please don't, don't, don't cast us in the outer darkness. We'll go. Just, and he just come into the area. His presence would heal people. His presence would drive out demons. I said, God, if you could do then, you can do it now. And I would just, and I felt like a disciple, I could see the disciples. Like they're just following for two and a half years. They just followed Jesus around before they really started doing the stuff, you know. And he and they'd say, I could just see, I could just see Peter saying, Wow, did you see that that guy didn't have any legs? John, write that one down. Man, that guy didn't have an arm. You know, talk about the withered arm. You've seen people with stubs in their shoulder. That's what it, When you go into the original language and you study what it meant have a withered arm, it's like stubs, like little fingers sticking out the shoulder. Those kind of things. No arm. Says when He healed the withered arm, He grew an arm. He grew legs. He grew in eyeballs when there were no eyeballs. He raised the dead... You can just see it. John going, oh, Matthew. wow! write that one down. Man, that, that one's definitely got to be written down. That's what I feel like sometimes when I watch God do these amazing miracles. And He just sets us up. I don't know what God's going to do when I go places. And It's not unlike Paul in this chapter 17. Paul was traveling to another city. But he had to go through Athens. He had no business in Athens. He was just, that's, you know, it's like I came here, I came, I live in South Lake, so I drove through Fort Worth to come here. I was passing through Fort Worth. Well, when you're on foot, you know, that, that was Paul's situation. So he just stops off in Athens on his way to another place. But God had set him up for Athens, and he didn't know that. It says in verse 16 now while Paul was waiting for them, That's Timothy and Silas. He's just there. That's their meeting place. Like, you know, I say, hey, I'll meet you in Fort Worth. We'll go to Granbury together. Somebody from Dallas. I mean, I'll come from South Lake. You come from Dallas. We'll meet in Fort Worth. We'll go to Granbury. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now, Paul, that wasn't where he was going. He just happened, he was waiting there just, you know, in a, a you know, a rented room waiting for um, the guys to arrive. Had no plans. But he just, you know, he just did, started just speaking to people, just, just witnessing. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the resurrection, there was a, de- uh, there was a, a god, a goddess named Resurrection. In the, well, in the original Hebrew was named, or Greek was named that name. And so he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was talking about several different deities. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I will stop right there for a moment. Now, now. He, he, um, he began to talk about this, um, these altars to the unknown God. Now what Paul knew, but what these Stoics and, and uh, philosophers had forgotten, was this whole story. Six hundred years before Paul came to Athens, there was a great plague that came upon Athens. Now this is in the, the Greek history books, it's obviously not in the Bible. But it's in the Greek history books, and this is what Paul's talking about. Six hundred years before he came there, there was a great plague. The plague the people believed was because their king was so at that time, you know, there was city states. There was Sparta, there was Athens, you know, and 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 they were they were like countries in themselves, but they were just cities. They had their own armies and all of that. And they would war and you know, all the Greek stories from all those uh, all those years and and uh, the people believed that their their king their leader he was so evil that he had he they were at war with another city state and and uh, he um pretended to want to have a peace treaty so he got he got with the leaders under the guise of a peace treaty and convinced them that he wanted to have peace and stop the war and all that well when he got them to lay down their weapons He ambushed them and killed them all. And they were at a peace dinner. They were making peace. In the middle of the making peace, they slaughtered them. And it was so evil that even the people of Athens and their mortal enemies, they realized this is wrong. Well, immediately after that, it was so horrible and so demonic, immediately after that, a plague came upon Athens. This plague was so bad, Everyone, every single person in the city of Athens got sick. They were dying by the hundreds and the thousands. And the the the, the prince, the princess, called the, the leaders together, and she said, "We've got to sacrifice to our gods." They said, "We've sacrificed, we got we've got many, many, many gods. We've sacrificed to all of them. The more we sacrifice, the worse the plague gets." And she goes, well, okay, then we gotta, we gotta get, we gotta get some other gods. Okay, so they went out by ship, by um, horse, by uh, oxen cart, every way they could. They went out, and and they plundered all these other city states, basically the whole known world as best they could, and brought back gods. I mean, they brought back hundreds, maybe thousands of gods. They brought back every God known to man over the next weeks and months. And they, the more they sacrificed, the worse to plague God. More and more people were dying. And so they, they said, we've, we've done everything we can. She goes, okay, I heard, I heard a legend about a man on the Isle of Crete. Now, whether he exists, I don't know. But it's our only hope. I've heard he's a great sage. And his name is Ep- Epimenides. I, I want you to go to the Isle of Crete. I want you to find this man and bring him back. See if he can help us. Well, they didn't know if he existed, but they said, okay, we'll go. Well, they make their way by ship to the Isle of Crete. And, fi- and lo and behold, Epimenides exists. The legend's true. He's a great sage. And so they convince him to come back to athens they they begged him they no matter how much money whatever it takes to get you there finally he agrees to do it he comes back to athens and he says just give me some time and so he walks the streets of athens and he hears the weeping and the wailing and the crying and he sees the the just the horror of the whole city being eaten by this disease by this plague. And his heart's breaking. Because there's nothing anyone can do. So he finds himself at the end of the day out on Mars Hill. Now I've been on Mars Hill. It's amazing. You stand on Mars Hill. There's the Parthenon. There's, you know, those ancient Greek buildings that are just magnificent. I've stood there on that very spot where Epimonides stood 25 2,600 years ago. And I prayed. And I experienced power. And so Epimenides stands there and he says, okay, we have sacrificed, these people have sacrificed to every known God. And he said, if there's a God out there that we do not know about, If there's a God that we have missed. If you exist, I'm asking you, please reveal yourself. And then I'm asking you, I'm hoping you are good. I'm hoping you're a good God, if you exist. And then secondarily, I'm asking you, if you do exist, I'm asking, are you capable of helping these people? He said, then thirdly, I'm asking you if you will help them. Please. And an inspirational thought came to him. So the next day he gets with the leaders and he goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to get all the finest sheep. I mean, just the finest sheep in all of, all of Athens. Just the perfect sheep bring I want you to starve them for a while. don't let them eat for a while and I want you to um then let them sleep and then when they wake up on this certain morning, when they wake up, I want you to bring them to Mars Hill and just meet me there. So on that particular morning, the sheep come out there they're all you know just ravishingly hungry they've just slept. And they're standing there and they said, what do we do? He goes, okay, we're going to let them go. And um, I'm asking if this God exists and if He's a good God and if He will help, I'm asking Him to choose the sheep He wants um, offered to Him. Okay, well, how are we going to do that? Okay, we're going to let the sheep go and the sheep that begin to eat... Immediately, we're going to call those out. The ones that go out on the grass and fall asleep and don't eat, that's the ones that, if this God exists, that's the one He's choosing. And they're like, the sheep are starving, they just slept, and they're going to go out and lay down and sleep on the grass and not take a bite. He said, yeah, if this God exists, that's how He's going to do it. That's what I've asked Him. Okay. They thought, they thought Epimenides was, you know, had lost his mind. They let the sheep go. The finest of the fine walk out on the grass, gently lay down and fall asleep. The rest of the sheep gobbled it up. He said, now call all those out. Every place you find a sheep asleep, we're going to build an altar. Get your finest masons. We're going to build an altar. So they go, they get their masons, they build the altar, they sacrifice the sheep. The next morning, in your Greek history books, you can read it for yourself. The next morning, everyone in Athens was healed. Every person in the city. A few days later, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the leaders, they're all gathering together. This is incredible. Okay well now who is there at, who is this god i mean who is it well we don't know we never heard of this god we have no idea who this god is okay well let's okay what, what are we going to call him and so they start throwing out names epimenides hears this he comes in the meeting and goes what in the world's wrong with you guys what's wrong with you well you know we got to man we got to name this god we got a man you know we got to start worship we got to start all this stuff he goes no we don't know who this is you write on the inscription to the unknown god He'll reveal himself when he's ready. 600 years later, Paul, having a doctorate in history and philosophy and Greek history, we believe he had like seven doctorates, medical doctorates and all. He was one of the most learned men in the entire world. He knew all this. So this is what he's telling them. He's saying, he's saying, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He's proclaiming. He's reminding them. Remember the story? Remember uh, Epimenides? In fact, you can read in uh, Plato and Aristotle and those guys. Epimenides, this is what uh, the Plato said about Epimenides in his book of laws. He said, Epimenides is the man who helped mankind reinvent the inventions lost during the Great Flood. Plato talked about Noah's flood. He said, Epimenides, he's the guy. He's the the, um, most learned man in the world. He helped reinvent all the inventions lost that mankind lost. He's brilliant. And he loves God. He loved God with all his heart. Didn't even know who God was. It's like Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts, where where I was going to preach, but the the Lord laid this one on my heart. Cornelius, he was a man that loved God, but he didn't know God. He was a Gentile. No Gentiles had ever been born again. When God spoke to Peter on the housetop and said, I want, you know, there's some men coming to get you. You go with them. Do whatever they, you know, whatever I tell you. Up until that point, they didn't even believe that Gentiles could be born again. All the Christians were all Jews. They believed they were God's chosen and only Jews could be born again. Gentiles, they just weren't, they they weren't capable of that. They weren't chosen by God so they couldn't be born again. They couldn't have eternal life. And that's when God spoke to Peter and said, go, and so Peter goes, he sees that the angel has come to Cornelius, spoke, told him about Peter and said, go send your men to find Peter at the Tanner's house and blah, blah, blah. Simon brings him back and Peter realizes, wow, God did all this and the Gentiles can be saved. Cornelius was worshiping God and giving alms. He was just giving to the poor and, and, and loving God. He didn't even know God. Epimenides loved God. He just didn't know who he was. It's like Helen Keller. When they finally broke through to Helen Keller, couldn't hear, couldn't speak, couldn't see, no communication at all. And the, and her teacher wrote in her hand, God. She had learned that word God. She wrote, his name is Jesus. Helen Keller, and she began to tell her about the love, peace, joy, long-suffering, death. And Helen Keller said, oh, I knew him, I just didn't know his name. I was ministering to a young man in China who had had miracles start happening in his heart, but he didn't believe in God. And when I began to share God with him, About the peace and the love and the joy. He goes, I know him. What's his name? I've been feeling that love. I've been told all my life that there was no God. I've been trained. I've been conditioned. I've been brainwashed that there was no God. But, but I began to pray. I felt like a fool. I felt like an idiot. I felt, I felt like I was, I was losing my mind. But I began to pray. He said, I began to feel love. I began to feel forgiveness. I began to feel redemption. And when I began to tell him the attributes of Jesus, he goes, oh, I know him. I know him. What's his name? I said, his name is Jesus. He goes, oh, that's his name. That's his name. At the mean tombs, the boy was saved right there, Chow. God set me up with Chow. I had no idea I was going to meet Chow. I was telling Pastor this morning. I got a call from Joe Jonas, one of the Jonas Brothers, and said, "Pastor Bob, I want to go with you on a mission trip." Joe had been had been he had been healed on a trip on a mission trip with us. He was born with his feet turned in like this. For 13 years, he was in, he was like this. His 13 years it was in braces and crutches. Nothing ever worked. Walk like this. On the mission trip, he couldn't help us because we build a lot of churches, and it's really hard work. And we hike up and down mountains with bags of cement on our backs, and and uh, you know concrete blocks and all of that stuff. And Joe couldn't help. And uh, and so Kevin Junior came to me, and he said, Pastor Bob, he said, uh, he said Joe really needs to be healed. I said man, he can't. You know, he can't do anything. I said, okay, let's get him healed. So I called the teenagers together. I didn't call any of the adults. We were in the Chiapas Mountains, high up in the mountains with the Mayan Indians. I just called the teenagers and I said, guys, Joe needs to be healed. They'd all grown up with Joe and they were like, yeah. We began to pray. It was amazing. His feet were like this. He's sitting there on the couch. I'm sitting in the chair across from him. His feet are like this. They went boom. All the bones, ligaments, car everything just moved. Everything moved. He went, we got back from the mission field. Well, the next day, the next afternoon, Joe came to me and he's covered in dirt and sweat. Pastor Bob, every muscle, everything in my body hurts except my feet. <laughs> All day long. All day long, he had been hiking up and down that mountain, carrying blocks of cement and hundred-pound bags of cement on his back. Strong as an ox, God had just. So he called me, and uh, you know, just recently he goes, "I've been touring all over the world. They were singing up to fifty thousand people a night." He goes, "Pastor Bob, I just need to, I just need to go with you. I need to go to the field. Let's go do something." I said, okay, buddy, let's go. He goes, where are you going? I go, we're going to Africa. Okay, all right, great. What are we going to do? I said, well, we're going to do some more digging. I said, we want to build an orphanage, an AIDS orphanage, but the country of Botswana, the government, they don't, they say they don't have an AIDS problem. So, the, but 30% of their people have AIDS, but they're in total denial. So there's no paperwork. There's nothing. You can't, it's against the law to, to have an AIDS orphanage or any, you know, any kind of AIDS program, and and I said, but we're, by faith we're going to build an AIDS, we're going to build a baby's AIDS house, and by the time we get this thing built, we're going to be able to have an AIDS orphanage. We're just going to start. We're starting by faith. It was so bad. One of our friends went in. Well, this was over now five year praying over five year period. And our friend that lives there permanently. What I decided was. I said, okay, Lord, uh, this is ridiculous. Because constantly there were babies. We'd get reports from villages, babies coming down that were dying. Their mothers died of AIDS in the mud hut or bamboo hut. And, you know, the baby's laying on a dirt floor dying. And we could save that baby's life. So we'd go to the government and say, hey, can we please, look, there's another baby out here in the village, in a certain village. Can we please go and get that baby? No. If you go get that baby, you'll be arrested. We'd be kidnapping. We're going, but wait, it's dying. The grandmother's 90 years old. She's dying. The mother's dead. The father died of alcoholism. And the baby's laying there dying. The baby will die. It's got, they said about, they figured, seven hours. Please, let, we can save that baby's life. And in fact, if you'll let us, all these thousands of mothers, we have medicine, that, that all these thousands of mothers that have AIDS, we have medicines that will block the AIDS virus from moving from the mother's body to the baby's body. So we can save the babies in the womb. No, we don't have an age problem in, in, in Botswana. And so, no, you can't, you can't do that. And this is how bad it got. So I said, okay, Lord, we got, we got to draw a line in the sand. We cannot continue just negotiating with these people and trying to convince them to do the freaking right thing. <laughs> and so I said, "I said, okay, we're drawing a line in the sand. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going down. So I, we took our whole team, I don't know, 30 of us or whatever it was on that particular trip, we go down, and there's, there, the, there's this city block of all these government buildings. And there's 20-foot walls all around it, barbed wire fence and all those kind of things, concrete walls 20 feet high. I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's march. We started marching. We marched all the way around it. We were praying, marching all the way around it. My son looked up at me, and he said, Dad, this is like the, the, the Israelites in Jericho. He said, they won, and I believe we're going to win too. I said, son, you're right. So we marched around. So we stood out in front for another two hours with our hands pointed toward the wall, praying. Okay, so Jana, our partner, goes in. She sits down with the, the woman that's head of all the human health affairs of the country in that region. And she's begging her. So there's another baby dying. If, we, if you let us go get the baby, we can save its life. Please. The woman said, no, get the blank out of my office. I've told you and told you and told you. Leave me alone. We don't have an AIDS problem in this country. Jana broke. She goes, but this baby's dying. Please. She broke and she began to weep. I mean, weep and wail in the office. I mean, she began to travail over these babies. And I mean, it's so loud, it's echoing down the hallway. Well, there's a man at the other end of the hallway. He comes out of that office. He's going, what in the world's going on? Comes running down the hallway. Comes in the office. What is going on? You know, man, you're disturbing the whole building. And Janet turns to him and pours her heart out. She goes, babies are dying daily by the thousands. We can help these babies. But, but the policies of, of the, of the government, the woman says, look, our policies and principles and laws and our paperwork, they are more important than whether those babies live or die. Babies die. That's a fact of life. Our policies are more important than those babies. The man turns and says, no. This has got to stop. He said, she's right. We've got to change. Turned out he was the minister of health for the whole nation. He was just there for the day. God set us up. We had no idea. It changed. We have the baby house. We go over every year. My daughter's headed over there very soon, taking a whole team out of Nashville, well, from all over the United States, and they'll go. You know what they'll mostly do? They'll hold babies. (laughs) They'll hold babies. They'll change diapers of AIDS babies. My son, he's so awesome. He works double shifts. He'll work like 16 hours a day in a baby's house just playing with those babies and changing their diapers, taking care of them. My daughter loves it. She's an artist in Nashville and she's doing great. Her CD went to number fifty-five on the iTunes pop chart. She's she's doing great. And she's the worship leader in her church. But she loves going and holding those AIDS babies. God just set us up. We had no idea. We had no idea. So Joe says, I want to go with you. So, you know, we're we're building this right. This is right before that happened. And uh and we're believing by faith to build a building. And so I had no idea Joe was going to call me and say, I want to go with you. God was setting something up. I didn't know what it was. So then we find out. They go, well, Joe, Jonas is going to be with you? Wow. Um, well, do you know what? The, the city officials found out. They're like, we're going to open up the whole city to you. We're going to let you guys go and, and preach and do whatever you want to. If Joe will come and sing, we'll preach and let you do everything you want to in all the public schools in the whole city. I think we hit 13,000 children wow. with Daniela, my daughter, and Joe. <laughs> So then, I to this day still don't know how this happened, but we get we get our partner gets a call from the palace in London, and the palace says, "Hey, we understand you guys are going to be in Botswana on these particular days. So yeah, well, would you mind if Prince William joins you? I mean, like the guy who's going to marry Kate, that guy, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So I said, well, let me pray about it. Yes. And so the prince joined us and we did a big concert and the prince spoke and we had a big concert in a soccer stadium. It was fantastic. God did an incredible work. That's a wonderful young man. He really picked up his mother's mantle. He has a heart for those African babies. Whew, those little children. I mean, he does. Well, you look in his eyes. You look in that boy's eyes and you just want to cry. He'll be a great leader in this world. He loves God. And... um so God just set us up. I had no idea of any of that, but I just said to God, when my wife after my wife passed away, I said, Lord, I just want to sit down. I don't want to do anything anymore. I said, God, I've lived many, many lifetimes. I've laid my life on the line. I've looked down the barrel of machine guns in communist countries. I've, I've, I've looked at the end of spears, of, of native warriors that wanted to kill me. I've been interrogated for hours by soldiers. I've been interrogated in Red China. I've been interrogated in, in East Berlin before the wall fell. And I mean I'm telling you I could go on for days. I said God, I've got a preached to nearly a hundred thousand people many times. I Lord, I'm tired. I want to just sit. I can't do it without my wife. And um, and I said, I'm not going to orchestrate my life anymore. As good as it's been, I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, if you want me to do something, you just set it up. I had no idea what I was saying. Because, I mean, now if we go to the Amazon jungle and we have people walk for days, for weeks, somehow from village to village to village to village, the word just spreads. And they find out that men of God and doctors are going to be in this particular village on this particular day. And they show up walking for days. And God heals. little blind boy, God just healed him. We had I tell you who was with us on that trip was the, he's the head of pediatrics for Houston Children's Hospital, one of the what five five or ten best children's hospitals in the world. He was with us on that trip. He examined this little boy twice. Stone blind. And another guy that was with us on the trip, Zach Stevens, he's he won you ever see the ballroom dancing on like a PBS, you know, ballroom and Latin dancing? He was national champion twice and his wife was national champion twice he was with us on that trip and his heart broke because he had two little boys about that same age a little six year old boy he said Bob we got to pray and a Dr. Dr. Brian just said guys he's completely blind he's 100% blind and, and he said okay and we just said a simple Jesus please please Lord please and Dr. Brian took a piece of candy out of his pocket, and he, and he was going to, the little boy was sitting with his hands just in his lap like this. And Dr., Dr. Brian, Brian Sibley, he took his piece of candy out of his pocket and he was going to put it in the little boy's hand. The little boy reached out and grabbed it. I said, My God, I said, My God, Doc, did you see that? He goes, Yeah, I said, do it again. He goes, he digs for another piece of candy, reaches, the little boy grabs it. Dr. O'Brien said, "My God!" He starts crying. "My God, Bob, you can see." I said, "Get our optometrist." Our Thomas optometrist was on the roof, putting the roof on the church. Doctor Neil, come here. He comes running across the village. What's going on? What's going on? Examine that little boy. Why? Just examine him. He examines him. Says, "What? What's so? So what?" I said, five minutes ago, he was a hundred percent blind." He goes, well, "He sees better than you and me now." I see that kind of stuff all the time. God just set us up. Did you know that woman walked for 15 days, I think it was, through the jungle to get her little boy there? It was her faith. that she was like the woman pressing through the crowd. If I can just touch the hem of His garment, I could just see that little woman, that little Inca woman, that little Agawuna woman. If I can just get to that village on that day before those men of God and those doctors leave, I know my little boy will see. I just know it. God did it. God will set you up. The Word goes on down through here. It says "The God who, in verse 24, "...the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation." that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone in image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now, declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. He said, this man today, this unknown God whom you serve, but you don't even know who He is, I declare Him to you to this day. See, God God will set you up And you don't have to go to Africa or the Amazon jungle or Southeast Asia. My wife would walk the streets of our town, South Lake, And she would walk every day. Every morning she would walk. And she would pray, Lord, what is it? Give me, give me, what is it? The lady comes, she sees Debbie out her window doing her dishes in the morning. looking at it. She walks out. She says, hey, I see you walking by my house every day. You just getting some good exercise? Oh, no, I'm praying. I'm praying for you and all of our neighbors. Oh, you are. She starts crying. Will you please pray for me? I'm Jewish. She said, What are you? I'm a Christian. Well, I'm Jewish, and my husband just told me this morning he wants a divorce. Will you please pray for me? Right there in the driveway. God touches that Jewish woman. Heals her heart, heals her spirit. My wife was set up daily like that. She's walking along. Woman woman comes out. Hey, what uh I see you walking every day. Yeah, hey. Uh, uh, I'm just praying. Oh, you're praying. Will you pray for me? I'm Mormon. Will you pray for me? And you know what? Debbie had such an incredible ministry to the Mormons in our town. They would go. The Mormon ladies would go shopping together. It would be like eight or ten of them in a van and Debbie. I mean, everywhere they went. She was invited to everything. They would invite her to come and lead worship in their church. It was incredible. She led so many Mormon women to the Lord. It was crazy. I mean, crazy. They'd tell me, they'd say, "Man, Debbie just she changed my life." She'd say, "I know God just set it up because there's no we would never have even you know been in the same room together." God just set it up for her to be to minister to me. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. God will set you up. You just you just gotta be willing. You just gotta be willing. And he he'll do he'll do miracles for you.